Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions, with your host, Rev. Paul John Roach. So, hello, and welcome to today's show on World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from College Station in Texas. I'm down here with my one of my grandchildren this week. And today, I have the thrill to welcome H.L. Hicks to the show. H.L. Hicks, and I'm going to call him Harvey. I think he, he doesn't mind if I do that during the show. Um, he has master's and a Ph.D. from UT in, in Austin, which is just down the road here. He's an award-winning uh, poet. And I've been reading his poems and, and um overwhelmed by the, the quality, so indeed he is. Well, and by the way, I want to read something that uh, producer and writer uh, David Kaplan wrote. He said, Hicks has written the most important poetic sequences published by an American poet during the last several decades. Now, that's praise, isn't it? He is the most interesting American poet writing today, the least predictable and most challenging. There we go stuff. So get hold of a book of, of his poetry. You won't, won't regret it. Um, he's not just a poet. He's also a translator, critic, and a professor at the University of Wyoming. Uh, he also was at the um, Kansas City Art Institute. Of course, Unity Village is right there in Kansas City, too. Um, he's also the creator of the gospel, according to H.L. Hicks, which is... Uh, both a fresh translation and a revealing look into the nature and message of Jesus. It's uh, compiled and arranged not just from the canonical Gospels, but from the 48 or 45 other Gospels or, or writings and fragments that never made it into the Bible, but have, have fascinating resonance for us today. And so it, it, and I want to ask in a little bit um, how... Uh, it was all compiled because it's 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 as a um, a readability that's very entertaining. Um, so uh, let's get let's jump into this. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to have H. L. Hicks to the show today. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Paul, for having me on the show. What strikes me first of all is the the. Um, the person that emerges from this gospel, you know, this Jesus figure, um, is, as we would approach it in unity, a, a kind of a radical, iconoclastic, um, both humorous and serious at the same time, but hugely likable sage, almost like a Zen master, right, who, who has come to teach something that's um, 
beyond the realm of religion, right? It's it's deep into our heart of of inner knowing. Right, absolutely. Um, the 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 Jesus that that began to appear as I was uh, researching and working on this project, um, of course, has many many. Um, sort of common characteristics with the Jesus that I was familiar with from my um, uh, childhood and early adulthood in Protestant Christianity and uh, familiarity with the canonical uh, Gospels. Um, but not not only that <laughs> Jesus, there there were other um, aspects that, that um, began to emerge or that emerged more clearly uh, for me in um, reading um, in addition to the the canonical gospels it kind of allows the uh, another Jesus to appear right because in the in the four gospels we're familiar with um, there's a lot of editing and uh, editorializing in general around you know who Jesus was and how he fits into really the Jewish tradition and um, and so his teachings, his, his essential teachings, kind of get a little bit lost, you know, because um, they, they fit into the, the the mindset of the time, in a way, um, the, as they come through in the Gospels. But really, what, what Jesus was teaching was, was so radical, I don't think most people understood what he was actually saying. But the, I think these apocryphal Gospels that we have, um, and they, most of them have only been discovered fairly recently, right, um, in, in the last 75 years or so. And they've only been right. studied, really, in the, in the last few decades. Um, they, they really point to a, a much more uh, interesting figure, for me at least, you know, uh, in touch with this numinous quality, this numinous essence um, that is undefinable, right? And that's another aspect that I find interesting about Jesus. You know, people try to pin him down all the time. You know, tell us about it. Tell us what the, the salvation is. What who is God, etc. And he refuses to do so, right? Right. I, you know, I think your word uh, "radical" to me is very important right. um, in trying to um, ask who who Jesus was and who Jesus is, <laughs> um, you know, this, again, to, to sort of uh, latch on to your words here, this indefinable essence, um, and, and it seems, it has come to seem important to me to recognize that, that there are institutional forces that are at work that are... Um, that tend towards the kind of fixing of things <laughs> that you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's difficult to fix a person or character who is, who's radical. <laughs> you know, the, even in the canonical Gospels, Jesus is repeatedly portrayed as contesting and defying institutions and institutionalization. Um, and so it's it will always be hard <laughs> for an institution, this is not to um, you know, slander the institution of the Christian church, 
it just will be hard for any institution to come to terms with a figure that questions institution. Right, exactly. I think this is the the interesting nature of unity as a movement, you know, the the um and we call ourselves a movement rather than a denomination or a religion because, you know, for that reason, you know, once once you start codifying into a set of doctrine or even dogma, and they've right. lost something, you know. We we like to talk about principles that can be expansive and applied universally rather than dogma which, you know, must therefore be be followed and and I think this this is closer to what Jesus would want in a sense, right? He doesn't want us to, to have a ready-made set of ideas because then we don't we don't see it, you know. Um, we don't see the right. truth because we're we're in in a. And I, I think that's a, another thing I like about the the poetry that you you're writing is that um, you know, it's very it's not like it it shies away from making statements, but it does shy away from from the easy answer from from you know telling us how it is and and allows the images and the ideas to 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 spark something within us you know that allows for something greater and and in, in the same way i think this is what jesus does at his best you know he he brings light into people's eyes and and um and and that's that's, that's fabulous for me right Right. It, it, your words remind me of a favorite um, passage of mine from the, um, I don't know what to call her, a philosopher, uh, Simone Weil, uh, who said one time, or wrote one time, uh, we know by means of our intelligence that what the intelligence does not comprehend is more real than what it does comprehend. And that, that seems of sort of helpful uh, helpful reminder to me that um, we we can understand <laughs> that our understanding is limited and we right. can recognize that um, what what looks very certain to me might look less certain to someone else and um, my rules might be um, you know, they might not apply so readily to someone else. And so to be ready to recognize the the, the other individual, the, uh, the other person or persons with whom we're in contact, with whom we're in dialogue, and recognize them in preference to recognizing my rules and my <laughs> ideas. Right. I mean, it's summed up, I think, in the last words, the, or the, almost the last words of, the, of your gospel, you know, where uh, it, it's, you quote, uh, the, the, the God is here, not there, you know. And anything that's right. there is kind of provisional, right? That's our ideas about something. But the here is only now in this moment and could never be pinned down, right? So, um, and I love that idea, you know, that if you're looking there, you're not going to find it. And, and unfortunately, you think... <laughs> We think there is a there to find, right? Search for the, search for the Holy Grail and all that, and and all all in, in the midst of our, our search, of course, you know, it's right under our noses, right? With the fish swimming in the water, trying to find the water, kind of thing. Right, right. Yes, I, I, it happens that this semester, um, one of my courses is on the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Ah, yeah. One of the things that he says in his later philosophy is. 
uh, you know, we, he's thinking about philosophers, shouldn't be trying to look for some obscure thing. We should try to see what's right in front of our noses. Yes. <laughs> see the obvious stuff, clear away misunderstandings, um, and that'll do much more for us, he thinks, than finding some obscure, previously hidden thing. <laughs> right, absolutely. I, I agree. Yeah, I love Wittgenstein. I, 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 a couple of years ago, I was in Norway, and uh, we happened to cross his uh, cabin there up in the the fields, you know, where he spent the winter writing his great masterpiece. And, uh, yeah, I started reading his stuff a little bit after that as, as an inspiration. And, yeah, very, very good, very good. And, yeah, he, he's definitely another one who, you know, shies away from, um, you know, easy conclusions, right? Um, it, right. It's it's the don't know mind. You know, in, in India, they call it nati nati, not this, not this. It's sort of the way of negation, you know, going into the unknown, the, the um, which which is a greater sense of knowing, as we referenced earlier, than thinking we know anything, right? Right. Yes. And there's there's such a tradition um, in the, you know the the intellectual tradition, spiritual tradition that uh, that I myself am most in touch with is the the so-called Western tradition, and even there. You know the the philosopher Socrates, <laughs> the, right. in a sense, the sort of foundation of Western philosophy, and it was this same idea that we maybe recognize more readily in um, Eastern traditions and in Buddhism and so on. Um, but it, there it is again. The you know he says my wisdom consists in recognizing my ignorance. Yes, exactly. I, I get it that my understanding it that my knowledge and understanding is limited, um, and I I can keep that in mind. And you know, as we all know from experience, not everyone seems to <laughs> not everyone seems to be able to keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, this is part of the problem of our, our world, isn't it? Right now, is um, that a little more humility would be would be helpful? I think. Well, a little more of a lot of things, civility, uh, good, sure. but uh, you know, definitely humility is one of them. Um, I don't want to get into too much of the intellectual introduction stuff around because you've got some big words there, like source bottleneck and enforced separation, <laughs> <laughs> example blindness. <laughs> And and you know they all they all make sense, but uh, I do want to talk a little bit about um, some of the terms that you've chosen. You know, in, instead of um, uh, we, we, words that maybe don't have the same uh, resonance that they would have had back two thousand years ago, because because right. they come with the baggage of of later times and the baggage of two thousand years of Christianity. So, um, for instance, you don't say spirit; uh, you prefer the word breath, right? Um, which, which actually was what spirit means, right? It's, this, it's the same etymology. Um, heaven is sky. Um, instead of the Lord, which is really old-fashioned usage now, you use the word boss. And um, for resurrection, uh, to stand up, which I thought was one of the more interesting ones. Um, you know, there's a, a, a Zen master named uh, um, Sunryo Suzuki Roshi, and he once said... Um, uh, when a tree stands up by itself, we call that tree a Buddha. 
And I lo I've always loved that statement, but it's, it's very closely allied, I think, to what you're talking about here, right? The, the idea of resurrection as, some, as the ability to stand up, right? Tell us more right. about that. Right. Uh, yes, what I, as I was, was working on the project and really becoming Im immersed in it, what became very clear to me was that these in, in both the canonical and the non-canonical Gospels, the vocabulary that was being used was a, a common, familiar vocabulary and not a specialized religious vocabulary. Right. So, so that what what then I wanted to try to um, push back against is that um, in the in the English language translations of the canonical Gospels, there are a, a high percentage of the uh, language is now, for, for us as contemporary speakers of English, it's now very specialized language. And so, so the words like um, angel and words like uh, Lord, we we use them. Their primary meaning and sometimes their exclusive meaning is in reference to Christianity, um, to the Bible, um, and and that's different from how a reader of the the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, not long after it was first written down. Mm -hmm. That's not the kind of language that that reader would have seen, and it's not the it's not the kind of language that the writer of the Gospel of Matthew chose. You know, the the writer of the Gospel of Matthew didn't choose specialized religious terms. So what I wanted to do was to to go back, step outside of our tradition of English language translation, which really begins at a certain point. It really begins in 1611. There were trans translations before then, but but the King James translation in 1611, roughly the time of Shakespeare and in England, the, that um, sets a kind of standard that everyone checks themselves against and that has become familiar to us from things like hymns and so on. So, so the language that those translators chose has become our language of Christianity in English. But, but the word Lord <laughs> is for us a very specialized word that we only use in specifically religious contexts, and it wasn't... The, the Greek word that is translated Lord, the Greek word kurios, was not a specialized religious term. So I wanted to find a word that was not a specialized religious term and go back and put that in. That was my idea, anyway. Yes. You know, and, and you know, it may not work perfectly in all contexts. You know, sometimes I read it and think, hmm, that maybe there could be a better word there. But what's lovely about it is 
it makes you stop and think, right? So, so if you hear the word Lord all the time, it, it's it goes straight into the, your you know, the, the familiar place that you've known since you were a child, and you're no longer really thinking about the the, the scripture or the context or anything, you know. So, so it's, it, this this is a way of wake, awakening you to something new again, right? And so I think it's it's uh, quite valuable in that regard. You do the same thing with gender, right? You try to avoid. Um, gender tilt or whatever and and, and created these words that, uh, that 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 are sort of contain both male and female aspects within them right and and you're right for exactly the same reasons not not with the presumption that i've solved the problem uh you know i i don't i don't suggest that um either you know my choice of boss to translate kurios from the greek instead of lord or my choice of these uh, pronouns that i've made up um it, i don't propose either of them as the solution <laughs> or as right superior to other choices um but i do i do hope that they that they do exactly what you've just said that they pose a question and that they call us back to that they remind us that that the that we're reading a translation of an original text we're reading something we're reading in English something that wasn't first written in English um and so we're trying to um you know get back to something uh, and so I hope that these these various decisions are um, ha- whatever about them is successful, whatever about them is not successful. Um, I hope that they pose that kind of question and that they invite the reader to um, you know to adopt a, um, an open inquiring attitude towards the the text and i think they do and you know one thing i like about the gospel that you've created is it still retains a certain uh, mystery or, or or reverence um in the languaging um and in the way it's it's laid out because i find some modern translations that have attempted to do what you're doing you know which is to create something that's very meaningful to a modern audience uh, i'm thinking of eugene peterson's version of the of the bible for instance and um after a while i i just want to throw the the thing across the floor because uh, uh you know it's not that i don't like eugene peterson what he's done but but it's just too it, it, i don't know it's, it's just too contemporary and irritating you know um he's gone out of his way to to make it hip if you like you know and i think you've avoided the hip a little bit um you know and given us something um you know, I'm very interested in the Eastern texts, you know, and, and some of the modern translations of, uh, say, Miller Rapper, you know, they they're still they still have the reverence to the text, even if they're in a, a, a contemporary translation. And I think that's important because because otherwise I, I think it loses something, you know, and um, what's what makes right, yours I, unique. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I certainly agree that the um, one of the risks of um, 
uh, new translation is always to be to be too familiar. Yes. <laughs> to um, you know these. The, I, I hope that again that this translation um, fulfills that ideal that you're very generously imputing to it of maintaining a reverence towards the the text of a recognition that these texts are highly valued by many people that they 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 convey a truth um, and so they're they're worth listening to on their terms rather than trying to make them look familiar you know feel too familiar to us yeah and I think you you've nailed it there that that's exactly what I'm alluding to and I, th I think you've succeeded and maybe because you know you're a, an accomplished poet you know you, you can bring that level of sensitivity of language and meaning to, to the text you know in a, in a way that somebody might be a great writer but I think it takes a poetic soul to to really um, do something with the with the gospels and make it make it meaningful and, and of course folks you know remember that this isn't just the canonical gospels um, we there's a weave of all the other gospels through through this uh, this text. And before we go to the break, um, we've got a, a minute or so. Um, can you tell us how you actually compiled it? Because you know, at certain parts, I said, you know, I, oh yeah, there's the Gospel of Thomas, or there's the Gospel of Mary, and I recognize some of the uh, or the thunder. Uh, what is it? Thunder Perfect Mind. Uh, thunder perfect I, mind. I, yeah, I saw that in there. Um, on one stage, but other ones I, you know, I'm not that familiar with. But how on earth did you manage to put them together? Because they seem to read so um, elegantly and effortlessly. Um, there, there was at least one stage of the process was literally a cut and paste. <laughs> yeah, so I, I had translated, a, you know, m much more material than I actually made it in. And I just literally printed it as tiny as I could read and cut it into small sections and, and laid it out on the floor of an open room wow. and crawled around on my hands and knees adjusting things and, and trying to create a, a through line for the yeah. Uh, yeah. moments that come from various sources. Yeah, well, I think it works very well. So yeah, you can tell, folks, I'm really uh, excited about this book. Um, <laughs> so I suggest you get go ahead and get it. It's... Uh, it's published by Broadstone, but I think it's available in all the, the usual outlets. And it's called The Gospel According to H.L. Hicks and uh, makes fascinating reading. And if you're in Unity, as, as many of our listeners are, I think you'll find it fits very well with our, our understanding of who Jesus was and, and what the Christ is, um, uh, very much so. So, okay, we need to take a break. Um, Let's see. When we come back, we'll talk more about this fascinating book. Join us in a couple of minutes. Join me and HL Hicks. We'll be back soon. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. All right, welcome back to today's show. I'm with H.L. Hicks, and we're looking at his translation and, and creation of the gospel according to H.L. Hicks, which is um, a compilation of uh, the 45 or so gospels that exist um, over and above the canonical gospels, but including them also, um, a fascinating text. And H.L. Uh, Hicks has also written a number of poems um, related to the gospels. And uh, in his, uh, his selected poems, which are called Obsessionals, uh, First Fire, Then Birds, there's a section, uh, a synopsis of various um, aspects of the uh, teachings of Jesus. And one really stood out to me when I was reading it. Um, very moving, and the symbolism is very beautiful. Um, it's called One Sparrow. There's a, a story in the Apocryphal Gospels about um, Jesus as a child, um, playing in the mud and he creates 12 uh, mud sparrows and of course the the powers that be the the older generation uh upset because he's doing this on the sabbath you're not supposed to uh, do any work or whatever um but uh, that doesn't stop jesus in, in fact uh, he claps his hands and the the clay birds fly away um and it's almost as if jesus is saying you know go take that then you know you don't want me to make uh, the sparrows in mud i'll, I'll bring them to life <laughs> which i love because it's again a, a radical form of standing up of, uh, showing himself right. uh, of resurrecting um but um anyway it's called one sparrow so this is one sparrow musing on, on what the heck has happened here until he clapped his hands we could not fly, but all we know now, we already knew from the moment his fingers touched the clay. He talked to himself, narrated his play, named all 12 of us. All we could do was wait till he clapped his hands, taught us to fly. He did wait, heard that old man scold the boy, would have held our breaths had we the lungs to. But till his fingers touched, we were still clay. Making us had kept his Sabbath holy. Birds out of clay supersedes any law. And we knew when he clapped his hands, we'd fly. It, I was the third maid, thrilled with my body. Thrilled soon to fly, but thrilled most that I saw from the moment his fingers touched the clay. The men were amazed and went away to tell others who would doubt it was true. But when the boy clapped his hands, we could fly, though we knew the moment he touched the clay. That's a lovely poem, isn't it? There's so much resonance in, in, in that for me. You know, there's, there's the literal understanding of it, but there's also this... Um, this metaphysical idea, you know, that we are all touched, you know, we're the clay, the flesh, the, the dust of the ground, right? They get touched by the, the divine and, and we have wings to fly. And uh, so, so it's very moving. It's, it's, a, it's a description of our own um, transformation, if you like, in recognition of who we are. Yes, that's, that story has fascinated me. Um, it, you know, ever since I first encountered it, yeah, um, and and a part of what um, 
a part of what that poem tries to capture. That that poem was written before this um, uh, the the gospel, um, but but what has has always um, intrigued me about that, and which carries over into the gospel, is that sense that you're describing that that here's a here's a kind of um, um, a version of ourselves <laughs> that's here, and and that is um, what I wanted the poem to do was to express that wonder um, that the 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 sparrow the sparrow isn't trying to explain or create a new doctrine or or persuade anyone. The sparrow is just amazed <laughs> yeah you know, i was mud and now i can see and fly it's it's just the sparrow is just amazed um and so it seems really a, a kind of um beautiful example of what what so often miracle narratives seem to me to be out to convey is simply a sense of wonder what particularly is intriguing for me is the fact that, you know, they kept reiterating they knew they would fly from the moment he touched them, you know, from the moment it started fashioning the clay. Um, in other words, you know, ever since we're babies, you know, we know that there's an inner knowing that needs to be triggered perhaps by some event or some moment, uh, you know, the, of epiphany, but, it, but it's already there. It's a bit, it reminds me of the the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? They they are, they are talking to Jesus. They don't recognize him. But after he left, they said, we knew it, didn't we? We, we felt it in our hearts. We thrilled to this person. We knew there was something going on. And it's it's almost, it was back there. Their wonder was backdated, you know? And, and, uh, and that's very true for me. You know, it, I think St. Paul said it, when it happens, it happens in the twinkling of an eye. You know, it's all—it's always happened. It's—that's it, the nature of it. It's—it's—it's it's, it's always. And seems to me, again, as you're suggesting, it seems to me that that this extends through all um, traditions that I'm aware of. The, you know, all the cultural traditions that I've had any kind of um, uh, contact with or read of or read from. Um, this, um, the for one thing, the use of the metaphor of touch, that you know, we all recognize how powerful touch is, um, and you know what it what it feels like, um, you know, a pet to have a dog that's a leaner <laughs> that that just comes and stands next to you and leans into you. No words are exchanged. No, yes. But but both entities feel the power of that. We recognize it in imagery. We've all seen photos of two large hands cupped together holding a tiny infant, <laughs> and you know we recognize that that metaphor of touch of cradling of forming and making um it's a it's a beautiful thing and and this story does really um draw on that and and lets us um 
yeah, let's just feel that and imagine it. There's a couple of passages that sort of allude to that, um, and I'll read them. We can talk about them. The first one is on page 74. Uh, the apprentices said to Jesus, and that's the word we have instead of disciples, right? Because disciples carries that baggage, doesn't it, of, uh, of, of Christian speak. Um, and the right. apprentices, uh, it breaks that down a little bit. The apprentices said to Jesus, tell us how our end will happen. And Jesus replied, have you understood the beginning so thoroughly that already you asked about the end? At the beginning is the end graceful the one who occupies the beginning that one will know the end without suffering death wow that's powerful stuff um you know in other words um you know go back to the source right go back to the beginning go back to the first things first rather than trying to work out how it's all gonna unfold and it's just a bit like the the sparrows again you know as they were in their mud form at the beginning they understood something that they couldn't couldn't express but they knew it right right and that who knows something that they can't express and also has that the kind of humility that that we were discussing earlier um, you know, this is the response that uh, Jesus is making here. Um, yeah, it seems to me to be a, a call to a kind of humility. You know, what are you, what are you worried about that for? It's, you know, it resonates with the um, the familiar passage from the the canonical Sermon on the Mount. Um, you know, what are you, what are you worried about the future for? <laughs> Uh, you know that let the let the future take care of itself be be in the moment be experience right. experience this this moment your life this now here now <laughs> and it's difficult to do that you know the, the, we talk about that's the the place to be you know in this in so many books especially in the alternative or new age spirituality you know talk about now right uh, being in the now um and it's become almost a platitude you know the, the, so so we need another word <laughs> we need right. we need you as a poet to come up with a better word than now <laughs> yeah and uh, you know and we all know that it's we all know that it's difficult for all kinds of reasons that it, it's difficult because you know our attentions are always susceptible to distraction so many things calling us away from focused attention um, you know calling us to um, others whether it's corporations or other people or whoever who want our attention um, and and we'll take it away from ourselves um, and so that we're certainly susceptible to that kind of distraction um, and and so we all know the difficulty of you know it's it is a project to live in the moment and and it's difficult because the moment is not always um, uh, you know the moment doesn't always feel blissful <laughs> right you know I'm my my body is causing me problems I'm ill today or I have an ongoing illness um, or I'm in a difficult 
set of circumstances of whatever kind, financial, or I lost my job, or something is happening, I'm grieving a lost loved one, Some, something is happening in my life that makes this moment challenging and difficult and and maybe sorrowful or painful. Um, and so to stay in that and to find how to experience it and value it um, is, is you know, as again, as we all know, I'm not stating something new or <laughs> surprising here. We all know this. It can be very, very difficult. And I think this is the solace that, you know, traditional Christianity offers, right? You know, you know maybe awful right now, but eventually, you know, sometime in the future, or maybe after you die, you know, it'll all be well, you know, and you'll be in the kingdom of heaven or whatever. And um, this, this sort of later time um, solace and and, and uh, joy is, is coming and, uh, and which militates against, you know, everything that Jesus was talking about. Um, and there's a great quote here. This is on page 140 to that point. It's, it's uh, um, talking about uh, the, the death and resurrection again. It said to say the boss first died and then stood up is imprecise he stood up first or z stood up first before dying it's a very important point here people who say they themselves will die first and then stand up are mistaken one who does not stand up first before dying will not stand up afterwards so this is sort of a contradiction there to traditional Christianity, right? Which says, you know, it's awful now, but you'll you'll stand up later. Um, it, Jesus invites us to stand up in this moment, uh, to be re to be resurrected here now, right? Whatever that means, to to see with different eyes, right, than than we see in in terms of the time space continuum. So. Um, I love that idea, though. He stood up first. And I've always felt like every every moment of Jesus' teaching was a resurrection experience. Every healing was a resurrection experience. There was a standing up. Um, so the physical resurrection at the end is nice, but not necessary, right? Because his whole, his whole teaching was, was standing up, was resurrection. Right. And, and, you know, again, this is a, easier said than done, no, no doubt. Um, but the, uh, the ideal, this, this um, uh, I keep using the word invitation, this invitation that, that Jesus is offering in that passage, this way of thinking and inviting us to a, a kind of state of mind or state of being, seems really powerful. It seems analogous to me, in some way at least, to the kind of thing that we would also say in ethical terms, um, that, you know, it doesn't it doesn't do any good for me to, yeah, I'll, you know, I, I'll steal this thing from the store and then apologize for it later. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll make up for it in the future. No, just don't do the bad, don't do the yeah. bad thing. <laughs> yeah, and so so there seems a, a, at least a, a small kind of correlation there with this passage that you're that you're drawing our attention to here. This um, the kind of call to um, you know do the standing up <laughs> this 
this sense of you know being living the living this spiritual self <laughs> you know do it do it now <laughs> right yeah you know we're talking about honor and, and integrity aren't we sort of old-fashioned values right but but they seem you know dearly and sorely missed you know in some some areas of our society right now even amongst some of our leaders you know the idea that like you said expediency is okay you know the the ends, the the means justify the, any action, and um, and that that's really not the case. I don't think it's it's and it's disheartening, and I think it pulls the whole structure of society down. You know, if we if we, if we have our leaders seen obviously to to be that way, you know, there, there's no there's no great inspiration there. So we're, we're in sore need of, uh, of of inspiration, but. But not from a demagogue, right? Not not from uh, another great leader coming along and tell us what to do, but from from our own inner inner integrity. Right, right. Individual and collective, our 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 tr- our true commonality, <laughs> our true togetherness. Yeah. Right. You know, in in unity, we talk a lot about uh, you know thoughts held in mind produce after their kind the the idea that whatever you're focusing on that that's what you're going to see you know out pictured in, in your world and uh, you know in, in the Upanishads they say he who contemplates spirit becomes spirit and it's interesting on page uh, 90 um, I think it is I hope I haven't lost it oh dear oh no it's, it's on page 72 um, in the realm of truth says Jesus what you see you become you see the breath, you become breath. You see the salve, you become salve. You see the father, the father-mother, you become father. Here you see everything except yourself. There you see yourself and are what you see. Um, in other words, again, it's difficult to do that, isn't it? To face everything, you know, fearlessly and um, live from that level of integrity. But but it's powerful when it happens. Right, and this too seems to connect to an earlier moment in our conversation just now that the um, the pull on our attentions um, and there's you know there's a reason why there's a reason why corporations want your attention um, because because it, by analogy with this um, passage that you've just read. You know, your attention is your money. Right. If they can get you. If they can get you to thinking about their product, whatever the product is, then then that's where your money's going to go. And so, so the same the same principle applies in spiritual life, in in one's economic life, in one's you know, love life in in all of these ways. Whatever, whatever we're focused on, whatever we're attending to, whatever our attention is directed toward, our other energies and decisions all follow that. And and this, so this passage seems a really beautiful, um, uh, kind of succinct reminder of that that fact about ourselves. So, um, and I, I totally agree, and, and we can use these same principles for 
to free us or to enslave us, right? And uh, that's the double-edged sword of, of this, of living on planet Earth. Um, so, so we need to be dyed um, uh, in the <laughs> dyed in the wall. Um, there's a passage, my, my, my favorite. I'm, I'm leading up to something here on page ninety. Um, the uh, my favorite scriptural quote is Luke seventeen twenty one. You know, and, and it's quoted here, and then it, then Jesus goes on to say something else. He says, uh, "No one will say, look here it is, or look there it is. Instead, the realm of the God is within you." Unless you make the right like the left, the left like the right, and the up like the down, and the before like the after. And in other words, bring it all together in that one point of stillness, of wholeness. You will not recognize the realm. The God is a dyer. As God, as good dyes, true dyes, saturate the things dyed with them, so things dyed with the God's immortal dyes become immortal. That's a dramatic image, isn't it? So we have to be saturated um, and one-pointed in, in this breath, in this spirit, in this uh, presence of, of God, whatever it is, whatever we decide to describe it. But it can't be a half-hearted thing, right? We must uh, throw ourselves completely, as Jesus did, in, into this awareness. Right. That that image, the metaphor of saturation, seems really beautiful and powerful. It does. That, yeah. That it's not it's not a surface covering. <laughs> it, you know, it's it's it is soaked into us. It is us. It is it is part of us. It is us. It's within us. It's it, you know it, that the saturation is really it's it's, it's beautiful, exciting. Um, yes. Yeah, I like that too, and it's an antidote to, as, as you said, you know, what's superficial, right? What what's just on the surface of things, you know, which which looks good but fades away. Um, whereas this saturation is is through everything. It's it's the it's whole and complete, and um, and that's that's what this breath uh, offers. I think this is what Jesus is offering. Um, I'm going to tell people about next week's show. That'll leave us a couple of minutes. I'd love you to share something pertinent that's on your mind that you think might uh, inspire our listeners today, if you're willing to do that. So let me tell you about next week. Next week, a homeopathic doctor and spiritual teacher, Dr. Gabrielle Cousins, joins me. He's going to talk about his spiritual autobiography, Into the Nothing. We talked about nothingness earlier. Um, and he shares his mystic uh, journey as a yogi, as a Kabbalist, as a practitioner of Native American spirituality, all leading up to what he calls the six foundations and the sevenfold peace. So we'll find out more from the good doctor next week. Um, but right now, uh, to conclude our show, uh, what have you got on your heart to, that you might want to share with us? Um, well, I'm, uh, my attention is directed to our thoughts about attention um, here. Um, but I wonder if I can uh, um, uh, just sort of offer as the thing that's, uh, if I can claim that it's a part of me, that it has um, saturated me. Uh, if right. I can just read the last uh, paragraph or so from, uh, from this as, uh, claim it as my own sort of statement. Please. Uh, so, so here, just the last words. We embrace the realm of the salve in order to abolish inequality, injustice, and discrimination, to return in the end to unity as we began in unity, without male and female, 
slave and free, circumcised and uncircumcised, citizen and alien, but all salved and salving. For the disenfranchised, rights. For the disadvantaged, empowerment. Steady the feet of those who stumble and extend your hands to the sick. Feed the hungry, offer rest to the tired, help up those who want to stand, awaken those who sleep. The God is here, not there. The harmful cannot harm you. Peace be with you. Mm. Beautifully uh, poetic and uh, calming yet inspiring final words, right? A lovely way to, to end the work that you, you've created there. And a, and a great call to action as well, right? It's, this isn't just nice ideas, you know, we're not blessing out into divine. Right. It's, it's, it's a call to action. That's another thing Jesus was intent upon, I think, was put this into practice, right, in your life. Right. There's nothing, nothing guarantees that any of this is easy and that, that the ease somehow is the sort of final outcome. There's challenge and difficulty um, and, and exactly as you say, call to action. Yes. Folks, it's been uh, a joy to have H.L. Hicks on the show today. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, Reverend Roach, thank you very much for having me on the show. I have much enjoyed this. Me too. And and thank you all for listening and uh, keeping this voice of an awakening world on the air. Donate if you have a mind to. But join us next week. We're thrilled to offer this show and all the other shows on the Unity Online Network. Uh, this has been a personal blast today for me. So I'm, I'm stoked up for the rest of the day. And uh, I hope you were inspired too. So take care and um, be safe during the continuation of COVID-19. But I think uh, we're moving in the right direction. So thank you, God, for that. And so it is. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.